You're listening to the Two Degrees Podcast, a podcast dedicated to having constructive and positive discussions around climate change and climate-related policy. Two Degrees is a project of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. The opinions and perspectives discussed in this podcast are not necessarily those of the New York Youth Climate Leaders. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Two Degrees. I'm your co-host, Bridget Musa. And I'm your other co-host, Radesh Singh, and we're really excited to bring on Bob Cohen of Citizen Action onto this episode. We're going to be talking with him about the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, which was passed last year in 2019, which many experts have hailed as a nation-leading climate bill, um, cementing New York State as a leader on combating the climate crisis. We'll delve into the specifics surrounding the CLCPA, some of its shortfalls, as well as how the state will move forward with its implementation. We're really excited to be talking with Bob, and we hope that you enjoy this interview that we have with him. So welcome to Two Degrees, Bob. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. I work for Citizen Action of New York, which is a multi-issue progressive organization. We say we for racial, social, economic, environmental justice, and we have eight chapters or affiliates throughout New York. So how, did you, how and why did you get involved with climate action in the first place? Well, it's funny. Um, I'm a staffer of Citizen Action, so um, Probably the answer you didn't want is that I, um, you know, was did it as part of my job. Our organization was interested in climate change as one of the most important strategic issues that had to be addressed in our state. And that's one of the things that Citizen Action um, is focused on. But really coincidentally, and, and I do mean this in the first, you know, in the same like six month period, that quite frankly, I started doing work on climate change or exploring it as part of my job at Citizen Action, working on a whole bunch of issues. Um, the, um, a major company decided to build or considered building a pipeline a couple of miles through our house, uh, near our house in Rensselaer County, um, w which was called the NET Pipeline which uh, directly impacted us uh, and could have impacted the quality of life and our health uh, right here in uh, Rensselaer County where I live, me and my wife and um, two, actually one is still, in, in, still living at home, but uh, where my daughters live. So um, I sort of got involved simultaneously, both as a job, as a social activist, but also I started becoming involved in climate issues in my own community. Awesome, thanks so much for coming. So um, first of all, just what is the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act and like what's its goal and what's its purpose? Sure, um, so I'm not gonna go through, I know your listeners are really knowledgeable about climate change and I'm not going to uh, uh, go into that unless you want me to, but just, just to get us started and set the theme, um, they're already beginning to project that 2020 may be one of the two warmest years on record uh, in the 140 years they've um, taken these statistics. And um, a couple of years ago, um, organizations from at, throughout the state um, through a coalition called NY New 
new NY Renews went, got together, uh, racial justice groups, community groups, uh, unions, and of course, climate groups. Um, and we wanted to um, have a broad response to climate change in New York State, given that the federal government, we knew with Trump and um, would not respond to climate change. And we incorporated in this, um, we wrote a bill which was called the, uh, which had a different name than the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act. But what we did was we included both um, provisions to directly address climate change, and I'll go through them in a moment, but also social justice provisions because people of color and low-income communities, low-income white communities throughout the state really got the short end of the stick when it comes to pollution and uh, the impact of climate change. And um, why don't I uh, just go through the real major provisions and if you wanna go into detail about each of them, I'd be happy to do that. So what the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act does is it reduces greenhouse gases uh, by 2050, uh, 85%. It um, requires um, 35 or 40%, it's a little confusing, but, of the, but 35 to 40% of the benefits of climate funds and energy funds to be given to low-income and people of color communities and provides a bunch of remedies that I would love to go into in a moment um, to deal with uh, projects that are cited in low-income communities and people of color communities, and also um, that ensure that those communities are not uh, burdened. And also when state agencies build projects that they consider the climate in doing that. Great. So with that, um, we were wondering, how were you involved in kind of the drafting and passage of the CLCPA with your work with Citizen, um, Citizen Action? Sure. So the uh, CLCPA, um, and at the time it was called the Climate and Community Protection Act, and it, as you just said, it ended up being the CLCPA, the Climate Leadership and Community Protection Act, um, was actually drafted by a committee of our organization of New York News. I was involved as, as, as part of the drafting team. I'm not gonna tell you that um, others played a, a larger role than I did, but um, many of us were involved in making sure that we got the law right, in identifying what the major priorities were, in um, uh, you know, making sure that uh, low-income people and people of color, their interests were really important in the remedies that were under the law. And um, like any other complex legislation, um, not only did a lot of people look at it from a technical standpoint, but we did a number of things to, um, to consult groups throughout the state. Um, we had uh, town halls. We had, if I remember correctly, we had regional meetings in something like five or six places in the state to go over the policies, but also have people look at the language. And, and then once you write a bill and you bring it to legislature, uh, the legislature always gets a crack at it um, and they, you know, they always have changes of their own. So it's, it's pretty, it was a pretty elaborate process. And um, just in terms of that process, how long has, you know, the groups involved with the CLCPA, how, how long have you 
guys been advocating for this bill? Well, um, so the, the bill itself, um, if I remember correctly, um, I could be a year off, but um, the coalition that I mentioned before got put together, um, if I remember correctly, um, in 2014 or 15, um, the, the bill itself was introduced in 2016, if I remember correctly, and it passed the New York State Assembly um, I think it was three years in a row, 2016, 17, and 18. Um, the important, and you know, obviously we pushed it that entire time with tons of events around the state. And the critical uh, juncture really was that in um, the legislature, the state in, in New York, the state Senate has historically been controlled by Republicans. The assembly was. Uh, has been for decades controlled by Democrats. And when, uh, due to a really um, progressive upsurge, uh, the, the uh, uh, Senate uh, flipped a couple of years ago to the um, Democrats and was, ab was able to pass both houses. And we actually had to bring Governor Cuomo along um, and that was not, not an easy task, but ultimately he did um, um, support, let, do legislation that was pretty close to what we had originally. Yeah, definitely. And I know that the, you know, the CLCPA has a variety of different specific targets for the state to reach, um, both in terms of reducing greenhouse gas emissions, along with increasing the state's capacity in regards to renewable energy. So I was wondering if you could kind of delve more into some of the major timelines and also the major targets that is written in the, into the CLCPA. Sure. So um, I assume, Radesh, you mean um, targets in terms of greenhouse gas reductions. And, and I'd be happy also to talk later if you want about some of the targets as to when they have to do various things to uh, set, up the, um, set, set up the process. But, but the, the major targets when it comes to greenhouse gas reductions are these that uh, by 2050, um, we have to get to an 85% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions um, from 1990 levels, which are um, somewhat um, lower. Um, in other words, in 1990, we've, there were more greenhouse gases than there are today, but essentially, let's just say it's an 85% reduction. And, um, and then there's this complex provision that talks about net zero by 2050. And the, the simple way to explain it is that for the last 15%, the law does technically allow some trade-offs um, where you can um, you know, emit in certain areas and then um, uh, reduce, reduce greenhouse gases by methods like carbon sequestration, um, which we're not totally thrilled about, but it, the law does for that last 15% allow these kinds of emissions trading to get to a lower than or higher standard than uh, 85%. And um, there's actually um, intermediate targets by 2030. There has to be a 40% reduction, which is pretty consistent with what international bodies have said we need. And then there's a separate set of targets for electricity. 70% um, of electricity must in New York must come for, from renewable sources by 2030, which is about a decade from now. 
and 100% must come from renewable energy sources uh, by 2040. So those are the main targets for greenhouse gas reductions. Definitely, and you mentioned the word net zero. That you know that that phrase has been you know has been floating around the you know climate movement and climate sphere for a while now. Um, but I was wondering, could you um, explain to our listeners what net zero actually is? Yeah, um, and and I hope I can because it is a really complex concept. And I, I consider my I am a lawyer, but I consider myself relatively new when it comes to you know climate policy. So I'll do my best. So basically, what the to use a hypothetical, which is probably not a real one, in theory, again, for the last 15%, not for all of it, the law allows um, that, for example, if you um, release, if you can't eliminate all greenhouse gases, the last 15%, to achieve the last 15%, then you can um, uh, sequester, Carbon, meaning you can um, essentially um, scoop up the carbon that's already in the air or eliminated. I don't think that the tech, we my understanding is the technology is not fully developed yet, but uh, some people believe we can achieve that by 2050, some don't. But basically we can um, eliminate carbon that's already in the air for that. And the other thing is you can trade one project for another, again, for less 15%. So in other words, if you, uh, for example, if you release um, greenhouse gases and you have some, you can compensate by that by planting trees or something like that, which would take some of the carbon out of the air. And I should also say that it's really controversial with our particular coalition, and we were not thrilled the legislature put in that exemption. So I was reading about the CLCPA in an article by the NRDC, and it mentioned that offset programs need to be designed in a manner that doesn't disproportionately harm disadvantaged communities, which you've mentioned. So how could the offset programs specifically harm disadvantaged communities? And what are the specific tactics you guys took in adding to the bill that to make sure that that will not happen? So, um, so an example of that, that we, we raised a lot in the legislature would be, for example, um, we didn't want to allow a situation where in Brooklyn or somewhere in New York City or actually any locality, any, any municipality where people of color live, you know, we have these peaker plants that uh, are highly polluting to, to that they would be allowed to stay open um, if, for example, you planted millions and millions of trees in the, in the Adirondacks. I mean, that, that was not an acceptable solution for us. So what we did is put a number of provisions in the bill that essentially require that you consider the impact on, on those communities um, be, before you were allowed to do that. So basically they would be the last um, alternative possible. I think that's the best way to, to describe it. And, and we hope we never really even get to that point, by the way. I mean, we ho I mean there's nothing in the law that says that you can't reduce greenhouse gases by 
directly by more than 85%. And we're hoping that the technology improves by 2050. Keep in mind, we're talking about 30 years from now. Um, you know, we're, we're hoping that we get to the point where we can simply reduce greenhouse gases substantially above 90%. Right. Or, or even more, and not, not have to invoke the net zero provision. That's certainly the goal of climate activists and, and climate justice activists. Definitely. Um, now I want to get into, I know the CLCPA creates a climate action council, and they have to create a scoping plan for how we're going to reduce these emissions. And would you just like to tell us what the Climate Action Council is and what they do? Sure. So the Climate Action Council is, is a, has 22 members. It was appointed a few weeks ago. And what it is is, and the appointees are um, a number of commissioners, pretty much every uh, state agency commissioner you can imagine that would have any impact on climate from, of course, Department of Environmental Conservation, Department of Agriculture and Markets, Department of Transportation, and, and a bunch of others. Housing, I mean, because climate is impacted by so many industries in New York, it's many of the major commissioners. And the important thing for people who are listening to be aware of is that means as a practical matter, Governor Cuomo controls the Climate Action Council as he does so many other entities in New York because he appoints um, you know, both the commissioners and uh, several um, independent members. But in addition to the uh, Climate Action Council, I'm sorry, the governor's appointments, there are appointments by several other power players in New York, such as the majority leader of the Senate, the head of the assembly, who's called the speaker, and also um, both the Republicans in both the assembly and the Senate uh, got appointments as well. So basically, those those 22 people um, are responsible for um, designing the major plan that will get us to the 85% reduction in the electricity reductions that we've been discussing. And what, what it literally says is, they have to develop the plan, a draft plan, by I guess it'd be a year and a half from now, if I remember correctly, that would be January 1st, 2020, I guess it would be 2022, and uh, hopefully I've said that correctly, and then the public has a right to comment on it. And what this really is, is it's, it's a plan to restructure the economy throughout New York State, um, they have to look at transportation, they have to look at energy, so-called energy intensive industries, they have to look at um, buildings, et cetera. And they write this plan, it's essentially gonna be a massive report. And then it has to, by New York's fairly complex legal process, then that report has to be translated into what are called regulations, which are binding law, just as if the legislature passes something. So. In summary, they're the ones who write the plan, and that's that's why it's just as critical for people in the public um, to impact on them as it is to get a bill passed. And if I could just like preach for a second, people sometimes think that they should get involved only when a law is being considered, but this is just as important. This is going to end up being the plan that we all have to live with, and it's going to determine whether New York really achieves greenhouse gas reductions or not. Right, definitely. 
Yeah, and you mentioned, um, you know, the regulations that, you know, will come out of the scoping plan that the um, Climate Action Council creates. How and can um, the, you know, scoping um, plan and the council ensure that, you know, the citizenry of New York State will adhere to these regulations and recommendations? Um, so if you mean, can they, I, what I prefer to think of is like, is will industry do it? And uh, I mean, basically, it's actually a really complex question you're asking, like d the power of enforcement, but, you know, ultimately there are going to be regulations and of primarily Department of Environmental Conservation, but other agencies. And, and whether they're successful enough really hinges on whether state agencies have both the, the, the power and also, um, frankly, the will to control what industry does. And you can't, um, we can't forget that so much of what, what happens in law in New York, and not just in climate, but so many other things, depends on us pressuring state agencies to, to comply. That's why we want everybody to be in the fight for year, years to come. Um, so yes, there's, there are various provisions in, in state law to make an industry act like penalties, but the reality is, is that unless we force the agencies to act, they're not going to act or they're not going to act as well. I mean, that's really what, that's what I'm here to say more than anything else. Definitely. And you, you mentioned a lot of the agencies, um, which, you know, are different from, you know, the federal agencies like the EPA or, you know, the Debar Department of Energy. Um, and, you know, at least for, you know, sometimes us youth, we, you know, look at all these like acronyms like NYSERDA or the DEC, and it just seems kind of like an alphabet soup. Could you kind of describe what the main agencies that would be involved in like the implementation as well as the enforcement of the CLCPA? Sure. Although I, I will have to say, repeat what I said earlier, that it really is a whole bunch. I mean, I'm going to get to your question, but I, I really want to, you know, diverge a little bit and say that there is a provision of the CLCPA that says that every state agency um, should, the way I read it, look at its internal processes and determine um, how they can contribute to achieving these goals. So you can think of that as in the most limited kind of narrow way, like a lot of laws, it's, you know, it's not clear how it will be interpreted, but at a minimum, I read this to say that, for example, I'm just using a, a random example that, you know, the, the throughway authority that, um, you know, maintains the New York State throughway should have, um, you know, be using electric vehicles at some point to um, to maintain um, to maintain uh, the state roads, and that's true of the Department of Transportation as well. So, but 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 I want to make that point. But to get to your real your real question, who who are the main players? Department of Environmental Conservation would be one, probably the main one, because they are you know regulate um, industry that pollutes. Um, uh, let's say the, the department of, um, NYSERDA, as you said, which, um, hands out energy grants, um, would be very, very significant in, um, 
in implementing different programs like uh, for solar energy. So that's really important. Uh, the Public Service Commission is really critical. They're the agency that not only sets rates for electricity, but they also um, in some cases have a role in approval of fossil fuel projects. I'm fighting a uh, pipeline right in Rensselaer County where uh, Rensselaer County and Albany County where I live. They have full authority to approve that particular gas pipeline. Um, we believe that, that they're required to um, consider the CLCPA in determining whether this pipeline should be permitted and we think the only conclusion they can reach if they consider it is to reject the pipeline. Um, you know, there's, I'm sure there's probably three others that I haven't thought of, but those are the major ones that, that come to mind. Great. So in light of everything that, you know, is happening, um, not only in our country, but across the world in um, relation to racial justice, um, you know, it's important to acknowledge how the effects of the climate crisis will disproportionately affect um, not only disadvantaged communities in the United States, but also um, across the global South, um, who have endured systemic um, racism and bias every day um, from, you know, uh, the interactions with the criminal justice system to dis racial disparities in healthcare in the United States, um, but also, you know, the legacies of imperialism across the world, specifically in the global south. Um, and which is why, you know, in any sort of um, climate legislation um, in the United States, it's important to address uh, inequality, specifically racial inequality. So we were wondering, how does the CLCPA do exactly this? Well, I have to say that, um, you know, and certainly I agree with the sentiment you, you were just expressing. Uh, so um, I think I should have said that I'm not here to as sort of the spokesperson for this uh, CLCPA. It's a step forward, but it isn't by any stretch of the imagination a full solution to racism or anything of the sort, or even, even um, what is called climate justice. But but, but I think the, the main racial justice provisions that are in the law itself are, uh, first of all, it requires, as I said before, that 40%, with 30, 35% with a target of 40% of energy funds to be spent on so-called disadvantaged communities. They, we have to define what they are, but they're certainly going to be um, low-income communities and people of color communities in all of our major upstate cities, um, lots of neighborhoods in New York City will certainly qualify. And in some poor uh, white uh, uh, commute, rural communities in upstate New York will qualify as well. And, and they will be able to get um, energy funds, um, significant amounts if the law ends up working as we intended to, we had intended to work for things like you know, use, use, utilizing electric buses, um, doing weatherization, whatever the community wants to be done, we hope. And, that, that, and I underline, we hope that it'll work that way. In addition to that, there's what's called the equity screen, which um, basically says that if you uh, construct a project, um, that it must, um, consider or the, the agency that is um, citing the project has, cannot, and it's one of those fancy legal terms, it can't 
um, disproportionately burden disadvantaged communities. Now, like a lot of complex legal terms, what that term means will be defined when the agency writes its rules and if people challenge the rules and it goes into court. But I think what it means, I hope what it means is that um, if you cite a project um, that has significant amounts of pollution, whether it's climate pollution, climate in um, initiated pollution or other types of pollution, that you can't cite it automatically in people of color communities um, un unless you have a strong uh, reason, like that's the only place it can be cited. Reversing a pattern of decades where we think first to incite cite um, in those kinds of communities. And there's so many examples of that throughout New York State. And, um, and I, I should also add one other thing that, um, you know, it, now that the awareness has, has increased about racism of, and as it should have been, um, and it's, it's in the top of the news, so much of we, what we need to do is not addressed by this climate law. And that means that so-called climate activists have to become justice activists. And you know, we could make a list, uh, we could list 50 things that need to be done by the legislature that are not what we would normally call climate um, legislation from providing adequate housing to adequate healthcare, et cetera. And we, we all need to try to push on all of those fronts. Right, got it. What is, are you aware of anything, any actions that New York has taken so far to align with this timeline of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050? Um, I think it's important to know that the law only became effective. I, I want to briefly defend the state on January 1st of, of 2020. In other words, it was passed in 1919, but there's a delay before the law. Um, be, a law becomes legally effective, uh, meaning the agencies and the industry has to act. So in the last six months, and again, to defend them briefly, we had the COVID crisis that affected you know, functioning of state agencies. What they've really done that we're aware of is they've had two meetings of the Climate Action Council. We think that that's really deficient. They've started to um, started a study or actually uh, re released the beginnings of a study on how to achieve um, the greenhouse gas reductions. They haven't put out a lot of information on it. I don't have a lot to say about it because they just put out a PowerPoint, not the full study. Um, and they have started to, uh, they've appointed the Just Transition Working Group, but there's so much more they need to do. And there's so much more that we, frankly, I don't know and the public doesn't know what they're doing. And I think that that's really one of the biggest problems that they have not been particularly open as to what their intentions are. But, you know, that's, that's what I know at this point. Great. All right, so that's actually just um, pretty much all, all the questions that we had. Um, I, I was wondering, Bob, did, um, before you know, we continue, did you have anything else that you'd like to add um, on your end? Sure, um, I, I guess the ma main thing I, I would like to say is sort of repeating what I said before a little bit, which is, um, this project of reducing greenhouse gases and achieving the social justice things the, for disadvantaged communities is really gonna happen 
only if we pressure them. State agencies are understaffed. Um, they typically, um, they're influenced by industry. This is nothing that I'm saying that is uh, controversial. It just happens to be a fact. And also, they tend not to, like any other group of people, they, they tend not to be particularly daring, which means that we need to use the same kind of um, techniques that activists have used for decades uh, to influence them. Just because they're in agencies, it doesn't mean we don't have to do them. And that means calling them. It means uh, going on, attending the meetings of the Climate Action Council. It means writing them. And that, that's really an important uh, thing we all need to do as, as sort of glamorous as it, as unglamorous as it sounds, it, we really need to like monitor these state agencies. Um, and um, that, that's one of the things that organizations like mine are gonna be committed to doing over the next few decades. Great, well, thank you so much for all your insight. Um, we really appreciate it, as well as all the work that you know, Citizen Action does, not only in advancing environmental justice for our state, but you know, as you mentioned, economic justice, racial justice, housing justice, healthcare justice, as all these issues are interconnected and you know, we can't have um, you know, climate justice without also you know, having racial justice as well. So thank you so much uh, for joining us, Bob, um, and you know, look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks for having me. Take care. Our producers are Anna Saraceletti, Natalie Penna, and Sophie Campbell. Our music is by Francis Bach. Our guest was Bob Cohen. Thank you so much for listening, and check us out on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at NYQCL, Twitter at NYYouthClimate, and visit our website, ny2cl.org.